Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you need to be. Stories and scandal water. Let's pour you a cup of tea. Hello, Candy. Hey, Ashley. How are you today? I'm good. Are you feeling Christmassy today? I am. I am feeling very Christmassy. I did my homework before you ask. Good. Good. Yes. And how did you enjoy re-watching it for probably the 50th time? You know, it might be for the uh, 35th time because I actually, there's pictures. I don't know if I'll be able to find them or not, but there's pictures of me and my sister watching this in front of our <laughs> little TV and I'll have to ask my mom if I can post one of those photos. I love that. So I've, I, w- the point is, we watched it every year when mm-hmm. I was little. For our listeners, mm-hmm. what we're talking about is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which is going to be the focus of our episode today. And mm-hmm. so because Ashley, does, of course, does know the topic, and we thought, well, let's refresh a little bit before we jump into this, because this is going to be a big one. This is going to be a big episode. That's exciting. Yeah. But before we get down to business, what are your associations with Rudolph? I mean, do you have like really strong emotional connections or is it just like it's just something we did? Mm, It's it's something that we did, but I actually have stronger emotional connections to another Mm. claymation film, which was The Year Without a Santa Claus. Okay. Now, Rudolph, I guess we watched every year and I loved it. But rewatching it, I had a lot of thoughts about my two Santas. (laughs) <laughs> so we could we could talk about that later maybe it was just some i guess something we did but i found myself knowing all of the mm-hmm. lines and knowing a lot of the songs i haven't seen it in quite a while okay but i enjoyed it i enjoyed watching it and you know something else is that it was a lot shorter than i thought i thought it was like a two hour series oh, you it thought was, it was like a full length i did movie. yeah yeah i guess mm-hmm. in in my kid mind it was forever long but it wasn't <laughs> No. Well, I have kind of a fun little connection to share. I do have my own personal connections. I did watch it when I was a child. And Mm -hmm. and I have, as I mentioned, I think in our Thanksgiving episode, I I have memories of watching it with my my family as an adult a lot. But I thought this would be kind of a fun story to share with you guys. Kirk, my husband, teaches fifth grade. And this past December, he was assigning his kiddos this article to read, which happened to be about the history of Rudolph. And through this activity, this assignment, conversations came up about, you know, he was say, sharing with them exactly what you and I had said on our Thanksgiving episode. He was talking about the excitement of having to catch that that show, that oh, yeah. showing when it would come up each year yeah. and how the kids would be talking about it at school and how fun it was to have a shared experience, to know that mm-hmm. everybody was watching it at the same time mm-hmm. and you would come back to school later and everybody would talk about their experience watching it. Yeah. And so as he was telling his fifth grade students about this, they started getting really excited. Yeah. Remember, this is a pandemic. So the idea came up that they would have a watch party. How cute so is that? So they 
They opened Google Meet. He sent a, a Google invitation. He opened it up, and they had a watch party, and that they watched so Rudolph neat. together. You know, that may be something they want to do every year. Yeah. Well, now I'm going to throw a question at you that I guarantee you did not expect. Oh, boy. Okay, okay. I got it. I'm ready. I'm getting ready. Okay, good. I'm going to test your reindeer knowledge a little oh, bit. Oh, I do love reindeer. Mm-hmm. I do love reindeer, okay. and I think it must have come from Rudolph because I have a strong affinity for reindeers. Reindeers ranked in order. Probably Prancer, number one. Okay. Sven, real close, number too. Maybe tied. And then Rudolph would come third. Just, I'm sorry, Rudolph, but my heart was taken by Prancer. I love it. I did not see that coming. <laughs> I did not. The, the movie Prancer. Have you seen the movie I, Prancer? I have. It's been a long oh time. Oh my gosh. But... That is such a good movie. Sam Elliott is a dad and a little girl. Uh, Prancer. I love it. Here's a specific question. Okay. When did reindeers enter literature in terms of being associated with Santa and his sleigh? Oh, well, yeah, you got me there. When did they come in? Was it the the poem, the night, the Christmas poem? Mm-hmm. That's a good guess. Okay. That was my thought, too. Okay. It was actually just before that. Really? What? Yeah, this took me totally by surprise. Yeah. I had never heard of this before. Actually, there was an 1821 illustrated children's poem called Old Santa Claus with Much Delight. And that is agreed upon by several sources as being the first place that has mention of reindeer pulling Santa's sleigh. They don't know the author. Okay. Although some people think it was the same fellow who wrote The Night Before Christmas, Clement Seymour. Okay. So a lot of people give him credit. But here's the part of that text that references reindeer. It says, Old Santa Claus with much delight, his reindeer drives this frosty night, or chimney tops and tracks of snow to bring his yearly gifts to you. It didn't rhyme. It didn't. Right now. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> it was 1821. <laughs> they just didn't care. Two years later came the much more famous poem that all of us are familiar with. In 1823, the Troy Sentinel published the poem A Visit from St. Nicholas, which okay. was the actual title. Okay. We know it more commonly as The Night Before Christmas. What if that first one was like his rough draft and then it just got published and he didn't mean for it to? He's like, wait, it's not done. Oh, yeah, I meant to do that. <laughs> but this one, of course, is where he names his reindeer. So okay. this was the first time that we had names identified for them. Do you want to tell us what they are? Mm, Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Donder, Mm. Blitzen, Comet, Cupid. How many do I have left? I think you got them. Rudolph. Yeah. Rudolph was not there yet. Yeah. Rudolph is, Rudolph is gestating. Mm -hmm. Nice job. You got Dunder. Dunder? Well, some say Donder, some say Dunder. Oh, like Dunder Mifflin? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. He's the paper reindeer. Uh, (laughs) No, I think it's Donder. It's Donner. But then I think the original was Don. What do I know? But my reindeer history says Donder. Here's how it was written in, I, I copied it over from one source. More rapid than eagles, his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called, called them, them by, by name. name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on, on Comet, on Cupid, on Dunder and Blixum. Blixum? To the, oh, I To the top know. of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. I don't think I said Blitzen. I think you did. Oh, I did? All right. But now, here's here's the interesting part. I learned so much doing this research. Those last two reindeer, they were called Dunder and Blixum in the 1823 publication, according to my source. Okay. Because they are Dutch words oh. that translate to thunder and lightning. Nice. And at some point, they started to use Donder and Blitzen, which were the German words for thunder and lightning. So that's why we had those different versions. So what was the first version? Dunder and Blixen. What language was was that? Dutch. Dutch. And then it went to German. German was Donder and Blitzen. Okay. That sounds... Okay. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. 
And then, as you said, somewhere along the way, Donder kind of moved into Donner. I wonder if it was just easier to recite Donner and Blitzen instead of Donder. That's harder. Might be. It said, again, this is pulling from this one source. It said that it was when Johnny Marks penned the song Rudolph mm. the Red-Nosed Reindeer in 1949 that the name, the spelling and the, and the pronunciation Donner became more popular. So probably it was related to that yeah, song. Yeah, music. I yeah. got it. And then, as you mentioned, the most famous reindeer of all, Rudolph, mm-hmm. is coming, but he's not there yet because he's not going to show up for another 115 years it wow. took that long before we got to he rudolph the red-nosed really reindeer lost. he was yeah. lost in that snowstorm <laughs> yep. is he named for rudolph valentino it doesn't say that he is but there is an interesting little quote i have about how he chose the name okay it's coming i'm interested okay. okay so of course the focus of our episode today is rudolph and we are going to trace this all the way through from the book to the song to the tv show so we got a lot of work today all right let's do it all right by the way i had some amazing Amazing sources. There was an NPR interview with Robert May's daughter, Barbara May Lewis. She's the daughter of the person who wrote this. And so we have that. We have a Time Magazine article. We had a Smithsonian article, all kinds of wonderful things. So I want to I want to shout out to them right off the bat because I pulled some great quotes, some great information from all of those sources. The good news was that because of these sources, we also have quotes straight from Robert May and from his daughter as well, because they were interviewed. Yes, interviewed. Rudolph was created by this man, Robert L. May, who was a Jewish Montgomery Ward copywriter. And the department store would always begin preparing for Christmas way in advance. In fact, it said almost a year in advance. For Christmas 1939, they had given Robert May the job of creating an original holiday story for its annual promotional booklet for Christmas. A couple of sources said it was a coloring book, but that uh-huh. was only one or two sources. So okay. I'm not positive, okay. but it was for children. He was not excited about this assignment. <laughs> in fact, Robert wasn't really even excited about life in general. He oh, was yeah. struggling. Here's a quote from him. And how are you starting the new year? I glumly asked myself. This is a later recollection from him. Here I was heavily in debt at nearly 35 still grinding out catalog copy. Instead of writing the great American novel, as I had once hoped, I was describing men's white shirts. Oh, yeah. poor guy. He, he did have aspirations of becoming a novelist, as he Don't said there. Don't we all? Mm-hmm. But what he was dealing with at home was was a lot harder. What? He was dealing with, with his wife's illness. She was dying of cancer. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And her health steadily declining this whole time that he was working on this promotional booklet trying to write this this original holiday story so he's trying to be happy and he's just not feeling it well and if you think about it he's trying to be happy but honestly he's delving into a character that's very lonesome and bullied so it was kind of dark it is kind of dark i was Mm -hmm. i was thinking that when i was re-watching it is the the concept of the misfits and not fitting in and just all of that kind of stuff but we'll Mm -hmm. talk about when you get to that part well and on top of that he had a young daughter because Mm -hmm. barbara was only she was five when the book came out so she's probably about four in this time that he's that he's writing it so the inspiration he figured the story should be about a reindeer because he'd already seen a lot of images out there of santa's reindeer through the christmas season and his daughter was obsessed with the deer at lincoln park zoo so it was in his head almost immediately he wanted to do reindeer he already knew the names dasher dancer prancer vixen comet cupid donner and blitzen because he pulled it directly from the poem and then he wanted to come up with a ninth and so it says here's your question he brainstormed a list of names that began with a letter R because he wanted it to have alliteration. He considered Rollo, Rodney, Roland, Rodney, Roderick, <laughs> and Reggie. 
<laughs> and they actually have that list that he had brainstormed at his alma mater, Dartmouth College in Hanover. Did he write it on a napkin or something? It doesn't say that, but it said they've got a lot of his papers and that list is part of that it. That is super cool. I know. Reggie the reindeer. But they gave he gave just a little bit of his thought process in a 1963 interview. He said he thought Rollo sounded too happy for a reindeer with mm-hmm. an unhappy problem. True. And Reginald seemed too sophisticated. True. But Rudolph rolled off the tongue it nicely. It does. That's a really good point. Mm-hmm. That yeah. was a good choice. The story plot was partly based on some of his own past experiences. Aww. The character of Rudolph, of course, is shunned by others, but according to Robert, vindicated some way in a happy ending. And so that he was inspired by the story of the Ugly Duckling, which mm. Robert May later wrote had always appealed to him because he himself felt like he had grown up as a shy person. He felt like he was small Aww. and he knew what it was like to be an underdog. Oh, mm-hmm. my heart's going out to him. Yeah, he sounds like a really great man. And Barbara agreed that her dad was a bit of an outcast. In her interview, she talked about the fact that just like Rudolph, he was a little on the outside. She mentioned that he had skipped a grade or two, which had caused him to be younger and smaller than his classmates. But smarter. I mean, if he's skipping grades, that's smart. Exactly. He had to be really smart. Yeah. And when the interviewer commented that Robert must have been a, quote, nerdy kid who saw himself as a loser, Barbara responded... It was his opinion of himself that gave rise to Rudolph, I think, so all the better. Yeah, geez, interviewer. (laughs) Calling your dad a loser? Man. (laughs) As for the idea of using that glowing nose as a navigation tool, that idea came to Robert when he was looking out his office window one day, and right in the middle of one of Chicago's infamous winter days, Mm -hmm. and he saw the fog from Lake Michigan, and he started thinking about Santa trying to do his work on a night like that. But it's funny, his idea almost got nixed because coming up with this red-nosed reindeer, they had a focus group and some of the participants thought that the red nose might have connotations of alcoholism, so they had to fight to keep that. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Guys, this deer is not a drunk deer. I I would almost think, like, I don't know if they had this back then, but when you started talking about that, it made me think of the um, towers that have the red blinking lights oh yeah so i wonder if he looked out and he saw a tower with a red blinking airplane light and mm. he thought oh i can see the red light through the clouds what if that was on did the they have those in 1939 i have no idea i don't either but that's an interesting thought yeah i know television trivia remember right <laughs> i don't know like real we people. don't know 1939 yeah. well he was working on this this piece this entire time and as he was getting his work done his wife's condition kept oh, worsening gosh. i know so another quote from robert Spring slipped into summer. My wife's parents came to stay with us to help. In July, she passed away. Oh, gosh. So his boss offered to pass the assignment on to somebody else, thinking that he might not be able to handle it. Yeah. But he said, again, quote, but I needed Rudolph now more than ever. Gratefully, I buried myself in the writing. So he decided to keep going instead of giving it up. Yeah, because it had been seeing him through all of this time, and he'd probably gotten attached to it by Mm -hmm. now. Oh, yeah. It was his thing. It was. It was only a month later when he was ready to submit the draft, and he remembered in his interview that he read it to his daughter, Barbara, who now, again, was five at this time, and his in-laws, who were all together in the living room, and he said that he could see it in their eyes, Mm -hmm. that he'd really been successful. Yeah. So what what he's writing then is he is writing just this is it like a poem or it's just the story of Rudolph it's just going in this booklet right that's where we're at right now in the story exactly okay. he is just creating this booklet that's going to tell the story okay. of Rudolph I don't know saving if it was Christmas a, I don't think it was a poem was it it was it, it was. was yes okay. in fact 
It says, in August, Robert May filed the story. It was told in 89 couplets. They transformed it, Montgomery Ward transformed it into a poem that was 32 pages long, but that was with all the illustrations. Right. Yeah. They created this little booklet, and they distributed it to the kids for free, which was intentional because this was right after the Great Depression, and people needed some booze, and they didn't have money. That's really nice. So the company gave it out for free. More than 2 million copies, and it was very well received. And In fact, Barbara remembered all the letters from children and teachers and store managers across the country who who wrote or gave positive feedback to her dad. That's so neat to be able to see the origin of something that has Mm -hmm. just been so much a part of our life. Because we think of it just, oh, it's just Rudolph. But then you think this man had to come up with Mm -hmm. Rudolph. He created Rudolph. That's right. And what we now just take for granted every Christmas. And it's fascinating because... Right before I came here, actually, I found the original manuscript and read it. Yeah. I mean, it's not the story you remember from the television really? episode. No, oh. it is It is very focused in on this one story problem. So Hermie's not in it? Oh, no. No, oh. we have no Yukon Cornelius. Okay. We have no Hermie. We have nothing like that. It okay. is very focused on Rudolph. Rudolph is a bullied reindeer. Santa has a problem delivering. It focuses a lot on the struggle of Santa trying to deliver and he can't in the fog. He actually comes across Rudolph sleeping in a bed and his nose, you know, gives Santa the idea. And then Rudolph saves the day and everybody realizes what a wonderful person he is. But it's very tightly focused around that one storyline. And I cannot recommend this enough. If you're going to check out one source, go to the NPR source that I'm going to have in our show notes because they've almost packaged two or three little articles together. And one of them has Robert May's daughter, Barbara, reading a piece of this original manuscript. Oh, my goodness. And so I thought you might like to hear just a I little would, bit yes. of it yes, I to would. get a sense of how it goes. All right. So. It was the day before Christmas and all through the hills the reindeer were playing enjoying the spills of skating and coasting and climbing the willows and hopscotch and leapfrog protected by pillows while every so often they'd stop to call names at one little deer not allowed in their games ha ha look at rudolph his nose is a sight it's red as a beet twice as big twice as bright while rudolph just wept what else could he do He knew that the things they were saying were true. Where most reindeer's noses are brownish and tiny, poor Rudolph's was red, very large, and quite shiny. Yeah, we'll stop there, but you get the idea. Her little voice is so sweet. (laughs) Yes. She's obviously older as she's yes. reading this, but you can see the threads. Yeah. You can yeah. see the core of it in there, but yes. it's so different. After this came out with Montgomery Ward, it was again very popular, and a small publishing house named Maxton Publishing Company even offered to print it in hardcover, and it became a bestseller. Did they sell the hardcover copy? They did sell it. Okay. But remember, Montgomery Ward owns it at this time. Oh. Okay. So they would get the money for it. It did not specifically say he didn't get the money, but what I did see was that he was struggling after his wife's death. He had a lot of medical debt. He was a single dad. He was continuing to work at Montgomery Ward. So everything leads me to believe... It was a work for hire and they got the money. It was their money. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. And and it doesn't sound like they got a lot either because if they had, I don't think they would have given him the rights, which they eventually do. We're going to talk about that in a second. Good, good, good. But what happens is this publication, which was in 1939, he again he's a single dad he ends up 
getting remarried, but he's still struggling. Mm. In 1947, after World War II, the bosses at Montgomery Ward did unexpectedly grant Robert May the rights to Rudolph. Mm. In the interview, Robert's daughter Barbara commented they must not have known what her dad had created. No. Oh, no idea, right? But now that he had the rights, Robert had this idea. He's like, okay, the book was really popular. Right. Maybe this is his chance. His brother-in-law was Johnny Marks. Well, there you go. Right? He knew a guy. He knew a guy. He had not hit, hit it big yet. Okay. But he was already a professional composer who had been writing songs since he was a teenager. Robert approaches Johnny and he asks him to create a song based around this story. By the way, in case you don't know who Johnny Marks is, this is a guy who ends up throughout the course of his lifetime publishing 175 original songs, including television scores, radio hits, commercials. He did it all. You may have heard of a few of these, but I'll just give you a couple of titles. He's the guy who wrote, composed, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Wow. Rocking Around the Christmas Tree, A Holly Jolly Christmas. What? Yeah. This is Johnny Marks. So he's done a thing or two. He's done a thing or two, but most of it came after Rudolph. Okay. Okay. So it's said that Johnny Marks really struggled at first trying to turn this book into a song. And he called his first attempt, this is his quote, easily one of the worst songs (laughs) ever written. But he kept revising and he finally had a version he liked and he went and started trying to find somebody to sing it. He approached Bing Crosby. He approached Dinah Shore, Perry Como, who said that he would do it. Perry would have been a good choice. Well... He said he would do it yeah. if they could alter the lyrics, and Marx wouldn't do it at that point. What, did, what in the world, Perry? No idea. What did you think you could do better? So one other person he approached was Gene Autry, who was known as the singing cowboy. Mm-hmm. Gene Autry was not interested, but his wife, Ina, read it, and she was really moved by this underdog story of Rudolph. Oh. And she predicted that it would be popular with people, that people would connect to him. So she convinced her husband to record it. It's always the lady, right? It's the lady. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, think about the timing. The book came out in 1939. It is now 1949. So it's been 10 years. It's been 10 years. So that's probably why he thought, ah, this day has come and gone. Mm -hmm. You think? If so, he was wrong because (laughs) for that 1949 holiday season, this song shot to the top of Billboard's country western and pop charts, and it remained a top holiday hit for decades. And according to Barbara, she said, I don't think it ever would have had the coverage if it weren't for the song. Thinking about Rudolph becoming the hit that it was, she, she, she gives the credit to this song. I may be wrong about this, but I think back when we did an episode that related to the Hollywood Walk of Fame, I looked up a couple stuff about it. And I think it said that Gene Autry was one of the, maybe the only person or one of the only people that had a star in all four categories. Four or five, however many can do. Yeah. I don't know enough about him. I don't, I know a little bit, but. I thought that was really interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe Rudolph was because maybe he got oh. one of those because of his, well, obviously he sang other stuff, but right. maybe this was a huge enough hit that it was. He crossed a genre maybe. with this. Maybe. Yeah, I don't maybe. Know. We've now talked about this song and we still have to talk about the show. So maybe this would be a good time to pause and take a little break before we jump into that. Sounds good to me. Okay. This is Joshua Reith. I'm the web developer for the Scandal Water podcast. I've known Ashley and Candy for quite a while and was excited to hear they were starting a new podcast. When they approached me about a website, I knew I couldn't pass up on the opportunity to work with these two amazing ladies. It was exciting to get their website up and running from the homepage to the bio. If you're looking for a website, feel free to contact me at joshuareith.com. That's Joshua, R-I-E-T-H dot com. 
Hope to hear from you soon to make your online presence a reality. All right, we're back and ready to talk about this Rudolph television show. That's where I'm coming in. (laughs) Well, according to the Smithsonian article, it was actually a series of coincidences that led to the creation of this now one of the most beloved holiday shows of all time. So here are the three coincidences. Okay. First of all, in the late 50s or early 60s, Johnny Marks is now living in Greenwich Village And he happened to be neighbors with a man named Arthur Rankin. Mm. Do you know that name, Ashley? I do. I think he was in the credits, Rankin Bass. Mm, There you go. In 1960, Rankin had formed the Rankin Bass Productions with his collaborator, Jules Bass, and the two of them began to produce children's television specials. Okay. So Rankin reached out to Johnny Marks to talk about that idea of putting Rudolph on television as part of their GE Fantasy Hour. Okay, so where we are then is the song is hugely popular. Yes. And he is living next door to this guy. So it wasn't even Johnny that went to him. I would have thought it had been the other way, that way. But you're saying the TV producer said, oh, hey, my neighbor just wrote this amazing song. Why don't we go ask him? Well, I don't think it would be just wrote it because I think some time has passed. But he knew that it was a popular song and, yes, approached Johnny Marks with this idea. So the GE Fantasy Hour, by the way, was a series of TV specials sponsored by General Electric. And it was really smart of them because it was a way for them to, like, market to housewives and kids. Kind of like the Montgomery Ward thing in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. It was free, but it had their name on it. If you like it, maybe you'll like our store. Yeah. Funny that you would bring that up because the second coincidence actually involves Montgomery Ward. Okay. A man named Willard Soloff, I want to say, was involved with both Montgomery Ward and GE. He was GE's vice president of housewares, which means he worked with Montgomery Ward because he was selling the housewares, but he also had influence when it came to the company's television specials. Oh. So this gave them another foot in the door because remember, Rudolph was created for Montgomery Ward. So this was another connection. Right. Mm -hmm. And then finally, a third coincidence was right around the time they're talking about this television show that features this reindeer with this hugely shiny nose. Mm -hmm. GE had just created the first LED light bulb that was capable of emitting visible red light in 1962. What a great mm tie-in. So why would you not want to follow this storyline? Yes. All right. So they went with it. And by mid-1963, they were in production for Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And this took 18 months. Wow. During the time they worked on it, GE poured the equivalent today of Uh more than four and a half million dollars into their special innovative stop motion animation. So this was the first one? Yes. Wow. Wow. wonder what gave them the idea to do that. Well, I think I can answer that. Oh, really? (laughs) Well, first I'll kind of fill in a few other things and then we'll get to that in just a second. Okay. But it said the reason for them putting in this amount of work and time and and funding was because of this huge marketing payoff that they Mm. got from it. Their Fantasy Hour series created an opportunity to market their housewares directly to viewers. And in in addition to the hour-long special, they would produce accompanying commercials featuring characters that would, again, sell more products. So they had characters from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in these commercials, and they would push new products like an electric toaster, an electric can opener, and an electric blanket. So it was a big moneymaker. Hmm, that is cool. Romeo Muller 
and another animation writer named Tony Peters were the ones who took Robert May's story and had to turn it into a full script. And in order to expand it, they had to bring in like this whole cast of characters and they had to really try to draw out those themes of individuality uh-huh, and alienation. Uh-huh. So they they pulled from his original script, not from the song? Both. Okay. But, but yes, the song really came from the script. Okay. It, I mean, okay. yeah. So this is where, as you mentioned earlier, this is where they added those characters like Hermie the Elf, Bumble the Snow Monster, because <laughs> they did not exist in that original. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Yukon Cornelius. Yukon Cornelius. He was definitely the extrovert of the group. Yes, he he was. was the party guy. He was just like, here's what we're gonna do. <laughs> well, did you was he one of your favorite characters? He well, you know, it's funny, I told Brian this while we were watching it last night. I said, I always thought that you looked like Yukon Cornelius, so I guess I must like Yukon Cornelius. <laughs> oh, that's funny. According to Wikipedia, all the songs written in the television special were by Johnny Marks. Okay. They brought Robert May's brother-in-law back, and he got to write all the music. An interesting note is that Holly Jolly Christmas had actually been written by him in 1962, and it had already been recorded and come out on an album by the Quinto Sisters in mm-hmm. 1964, but then just a month or two later was when it came out on the television special, Rudolph. It was originally supposed to have been sung by Yukon Cornelius, <laughs> but they decided to give it to Burl Ives well, yeah, because he was the singer. Because he's Burl Ives. Right, he was famous for his singing. Now, and, and how close did that? I also said this. How much could you make a snowman look? How wide did it look just like Burl Ives? They did such and a good job. It was a snowman with and it with tiny little beady eyes, but it still. I was like, that's Burl Ives. Yeah, it just looked like him. They did such a good job. They really did. And this is where that comes in that animation that you keep bringing up because it was so powerful and it was so impactful to making this show what it was to execute this script. Rankin and Bass decided they wanted the animation to go to this fella from Japan, Tadahito, known as Tad mm-hmm. Mokunaga. Mm-hmm. He was a pioneering filmmaker who developed the very first puppet-based stop-motion animation in both Japan and China. Okay. China came first. Okay. In 1947, he was helping to create an animated propaganda film in China, and he decided it was a political statement. He was trying to create these two political figures, and so he decided he was literally going to use puppets to represent them kind of as a mockery type thing. But it resulted in China's first stop-motion puppet animation, which everybody thought was really cool. It is really cool. So then he takes it to Japan, Uh and in 1955, while he's in Japan, he brings that technique with him, and he uses that stop-motion animation to produce a beer commercial, which became Japan's first stop motion puppet animation. The success caused him to start the puppet animation studio in Tokyo. It was so popular because his puppets and his animation were so fluid. I mean, just very uncharacteristically fluid for that time. They decided they named his true to life animation technique Animagic. Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. He was one of the world's leading animators now, and Mokunaga developed this international reputation. So when Rankin met him during a 1959 tour of Japanese animation studios, he reached out to him. Okay, so I wonder if they had seen his stuff and they thought that's that's what mm-hmm. gave them the idea. Instead of doing it as a cartoon, they, they saw this stop motion and they thought, oh, we want to bring it to America. I suspect that's yeah, exactly that what they sense. did. Something different, something yeah. really innovative that was the hot, the hot thing at the time, right? Mm-hmm. The new technology. Mm-hmm. And the historian for Rankin Bass Productions, this fellow named Goldschmidt, he credits Mokunaga's Animagic Technique with being the one that pushed GE Fantasy Hour to new heights of popularity. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so here's 
what this animation technique involved. It said that working from scripts provided by Rankin Bass, Mokunawa directed an elaborate production featuring 22 handmade sets. All of them were built to scale for the cast of four-inch puppets that had been crafted by a designer named They're only four Ikuro inches tall? Komuro. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. This is how detailed they were, Ashley. Prior to filming, Mokunaga actually traveled to this place in Japan, a small city that was east of Osaka, mm-hmm. with his assistant. And they went there because there was a deer sanctuary established in 1818 that was supposed to protect the area's population of sacred deer. Yeah. And it said those particular deer were uniquely accustomed to humans and they would like come up to visitors, they would oh nibble my food, gosh, they would I mimic would love human. that place. Uh, you would. I would. But listen, they would mimic human bowing. Tell me that you're not now seeing this in the film, right? Oh, yeah. So this pair of animators spent days, two days, observing the deer and they took all these notes in detail that you now see in their animation, such as the the eyelids, the way that the eyelids would lower. And every second of filming required 24 frames of animation. I, I can't I can't even I cannot even imagine. And I, I feel like watching it, you just go, This was so much work. Mm-hmm. This was so much work. And I don't know if everybody thinks that, but me watching it, that's what I think about. After doing this research, yeah. I think I'm gonna watch it with an, a mind. fresh lens mm-hmm. because I could picture it as as he was talking about the eyelids. I was thinking about the eyelids closing as mm-hmm. you would watch the show. Mm-hmm. But all of those details in the way I'm thinking about the reindeer when they would bow. Yeah. So my question, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, is you said they worked from their script. I would feel like they would need the audio so that they could move the mouths or did it not matter? Did they do, did the animation come first or did the vocal acting come first? I cannot answer that. I do remember seeing that they, they were a big production. They had some of their vocals coming from like a Canadian production company. This was, this was a huge Huge. thing, but I'm not sure how to answer your question. Okay. We'd have to look that one up later. I would assume, my guess is going to be that you would have to Mm -hmm. have, because you'd have to match the people. That's what they do with the cartoons. Now mm-hmm. in the animation now that makes sense they to go me ahead too. and record the the soundtrack and then animate to that right because you have to match yeah. it up it right to right. line up so a quote even though the animation got more fluid as time went on and it got more perfected and things looked technically better they still thought that Rudolph was the best this was the historian talking about really? how other stop motion television series and yeah. shows kind of popped up after this uh-huh. but he felt like the work they did the way they crafted it in Rudolph was kind of like the highlight it was the the peak of their skill so they're saying we came out of the gate with the best the best of the best and it was down not necessarily downhill from there but it just and maybe it was because it was the first one maybe you know how you have that those special feelings about creating this thing maybe that's it and maybe they didn't have the money and the time for their other specials maybe. i mean 18 months and four and a half million dollars true do you know how many specials there were i don't i know later it mentions that because of Rudolph, uh-huh. it prompted some of these other holiday specials like Nestor, the long-eared Christmas donkey, that. That is... uh, the leprechaun's Christmas gold. You want to cry, watch Nestor. My goodness. <laughs> Shoot. Santa Claus is coming to town. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were several that they Year mentioned. Without a Santa Claus is on there, too, because I saw in the credits. I watched that mm-hmm. uh, yesterday morning oh, just because awesome. I wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> to kind of wrap this up, this, again, this historian that I've quoted several times, he mentions that this was an art form. Yeah. I mean, what they were yeah. doing was an art form and that 
because of the skill of these animators, you don't even think about those characters as puppets. They are personalities. Yeah, that's what he did. Look at the modern Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm -hmm. I wonder if uh, Tim Burton saw that. Well, funny you should ask because... He was inspired by them. Oh, he was. Yeah, that, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah. That's the next part I was going to talk about. Oh, sorry. The, no, 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 no. Okay. You're right on it. The impact and the legacy, you've already kind of previewed. This led to a slew of other holiday specials that used this stop motion animation technique. Not just holiday specials, but even some other things like J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit uh, and The Return of the King. They had some animated adaptations of that at some point. Oh, yeah. um, so it, it sparked a lot of productions Mm -hmm. of course we had two sequels to rudolph one was new year's eve related and another for the fourth of july was it the same people like it doesn't say if it was that same animator but but it sounds like rankin and bass were behind them okay okay and then as you were saying another impact was that rankin and bass's television specials inspired a lot of modern filmmakers one of them being tim burton They said that Burton relied on a cast of puppets built with interior joints when he created The Nightmare Before Christmas. In his production, he had his characters moving fluidly through 230 built-to-scale sets. That's just, I cannot even comprehend that level of of dedication Mm -hmm. and detail work, and that's amazing. Right. Finally, they also said that another example of, of the inspiration on a modern filmmaker or a modern company would be Pixar. The Because they go on those research trips too. When you said that, where they went to the reindeer conservation place, yes. I thought of Pixar where they go to different places and they get research and they do they do that similar thing. Yeah, they said that there was a lot of impact of Animagic on Pixar's digitally animated movies, one of those being Toy Story. Mm, yeah. yeah, I think it, for Frozen, they actually went to Norway and looked at, huh. looked at the fjords, which I would have loved to have been on that trip. Oh, how cool is that? When the story of Rudolph aired as this television special in 1964, it became such a hit that it has actually been rebroadcast every year since, making it the longest running Christmas special in history. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Even today, like when it plays, it still brings in a massive audience. Yeah, because you can't, but I looked to stream this, you can't stream it. Oh, really? No, it wasn't on Amazon. It wasn't on Netflix. So they either have it on a specific streaming service, Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure where you get it, or they only show it. You can buy it on DVD, which we did. We did, too. Or you can see it on TV. Well, it's paid off for them because it said in 2016, when it aired on CBS, it beat every show except This Is Us. In 2017, more viewers tuned in to watch Rudolph than A Charlie Brown Christmas, which ran on ABC in the same time slot. And in 2018, Hollywood Reporter did this little poll Uh and 83% of the respondents said that Rudolph was the most beloved holiday film. What about that? What a legacy. Yeah. So why so popular? Well, we've talked a lot about the technology and how wonderful that was. But another thing said in the sources was that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was so wonderful because of its timeless story, its unique characters, and its wonderful themes. Here's a quote. Romeo, that was the screenwriter who turned the book into a script. Romeo wrote these characters to be underdogs that don't quite fit in the world. By the end of the show, they triumph and the villains get reformed most of the time. They're such satisfying stories. It really is. And our final note, when Robert May died in 1976 at the age of 71, his obituary in Time magazine noted that he had received royalties on more than 100 Red Nose products, as well as the song, since 
Montgomery Ward had let him have that copyright in 1947. By 1985, the song had sold 150 million records and 8 million sheet music copies worldwide. And when the puppets from the 1964 TV special went up for sale in 2017, I think, they said that the bids went as high as $10 million. Holy cats. Yeah. Armchair psychologist. So what do you think, Ashley? He, this historian, has just said that some of the qualities that make it such a great show are the the characters and the plot and the timeless themes. What are your thoughts? I, well, first of all, can I just say, this Santa was mean. Did you think? (laughs) I did. did. Honestly, I did. I thought, geez, Santa, he was so mean to the little, because you would think that he would be the guy, he's the jolly old elf. Mm -hmm. He was mean to his wife. (laughs) She's trying to get him to eat dinner, and he's a skinny Santa, and he's like, leave me alone. And then... When Rudolph is born, he goes in and sees him and he's like, get that red nose out of here. I don't know, something like that. But I just thought, geez, Louise, Santa. See, I came off fresh off mm-hmm. of, I watched him back to back, You're Without a Santa Claus. And then this one, You're Without a Santa Claus is, that's my Santa. Mickey mm. Rooney is my Santa. I love Mickey Rooney. He's why I named my cat Rooney. It's just adore him. And yeah. probably from this is my earliest memory of Mickey Rooney is that also have his autograph so. <laughs> <laughs> just fyi so mickey's santa was seemed to have a kind heart and mm-hmm. e- even though he had a cold he was kind of grumpy right he still went and did the right thing and took care of people and he loved his reindeer and all that i just got the i got the feeling that this santa just had had a had like 364 nights of bad sleep and he's th- not a jolly old no elf. he was not jolly no. and then when the little wee singers the elves were singing. I thought they sounded wonderful. They did. And he sat there and he looked like he was just checked out. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Claus was like, oh, you were wonderful. And he's like, oh, I need some work. And then the boss said, you sounded terrible. And I thought, if that's the theme you all were going for, you needed to actually have bad singers. They sounded <laughs> right. wonderful. So those were my two negative. Let's do those up front. I love, I, I love, how can you not? Like all those characters. Even mm-hmm. the Island of Misfit Toys oh, yeah. makes me so melancholy. They're so sad. Although I'm not sure what was wrong with Sally. Do we know? The little doll? I don't remember. No. I don't remember. And I thought the the elephant with the pink spots, I would have taken that. Yes, I would have too. But the Charlie in the box, I mean, <laughs> he, had, he had a problem. But I just, and the lion boss king he mm-hmm. was so kind i mm-hmm. just thought i would like to live on the island of misfit toys i feel like i would fit in with the misfit toys and that is what has stayed with me through the years is this feeling of misfittery mm-hmm. and those you finally find your people after all these years and hermy oh and also hermy wanting to be a dentist right. you would think what in the world why would you choose that profession but then he's able to save the day right. by being a dentist later and right. i think this is also what made yetis in the vernacular you know you got our first we got our first uh, snow monster but you know he just needed a friend I, I just also think it's really funny what they do with their eyeballs when they're surprised how the eyes roll around every oh, time yeah. they go Woo! <laughs> so that was my those are your impressions short short impressions i love it do you, what did you think i agree with you i when I when I listened again, I was surprised at how grumpy Santa was. Mm-hmm. He was not portrayed to mm-hmm. be a jolly, jolly person at all. Kind of mean. Honestly, I was disappointed with everybody. I thought the other reindeer were very mean. They I thought were. I thought Donner 
was a, the dad yeah the dad was a bit of a jerk to his mm-hmm. kid too i feel like the screenwriters the script writers were were trying so hard to make the themes very obvious yeah. to a young yeah. audience oh, sure sure and so i i liked that these reindeer that were in my mind bullying him mm-hmm. ended up realizing how wonderful he was what a great individual how he had saved the day how mm-hmm. he had characteristics and strengths that none of them had yeah. and so i'm like okay well i guess they had to really go extreme one way to try to really bring it back and they did it they, the they hit it also i just thought of this it's the nose sound effect whatever it is is must be deeply ingrained in me from childhood because i remember being at a subway one time and it was summer so it's not like it's christmas and this is out but there was a gentleman in there who worked for some official capacity for something he had one of those walkie talkies on his side and it squelched and it sounded like that Marie. and in my <laughs> mind i went ready santa <laughs> So there's that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. I love it. Anytime I hear that stuff, I think, ready, Santa. You have a much better memory than I do. That is for sure. You make these connections very quickly. I don't know what's wrong with me. (laughs) We have spent quite a bit of time talking about the technology, Mm -hmm. which was very innovative for Mm -hmm. this time period. And Mm -hmm. we've talked about how it sparked a lot of innovation and other shows afterwards. But my question to you is, why would stop motion animation make such a big difference to a storyline like why would that be something that would make a difference to this television special or to some of the other ones that you named christmas without a santa claus or whatever it might a year be. without a santa claus a year without get a santa it claus. right a year without <laughs> a santa claus there'll be no year without a santa claus I-, I think you just answered i think you answered your own question earlier in the episode because it was novel it was new it was the latest technology it's it's why we rushed to see pixar because I can remember seeing Toy Story in the theater and just being gobsmacked with the animation or taking it back further in 1991 with the Beauty and the Beast when they animated that mm-hmm. uh, ballroom. I thought this was this is the height. This is it. Mm-hmm. We've we've achieved like the greatest thing ever. That was me as an 11 year old. Right. But that probably is what the kids thought then too. Just you had never seen this. Right. This is fascinating. And even watching it, being someone that now is involved in storytelling and uh, editing and video and all that, I can watch it more with a not a, I don't want to say a critical eye in the negative sense but just a from a maker's eye from a creative mm-hmm. eye and watching year without a Santa Claus I could see the strings and when the snow miser would spin I could mm. see the nail that he was spinning on it didn't take me out of it I just was looking at it like oh that's how they did that right it just fascinates me to think maybe this is part of it too you're looking at it and you're thinking how much dedication right. this took to put together. And you just respect the time. Mm-hmm. That's an adult. The kids are probably looking at it like, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like this. Or at least the kids back then. Right. And that, and again, we, we've hit on this before where they introduce it to, so it was amazing to them. Then they introduce it to their kids and then it becomes a tradition. Right. So even if the technology is outdated, you've still got the nostalgia. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Your point about being able to analyze the craft of mm-hmm, it, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> enjoying that kind of almost behind the scenes analysis. I did. Yeah, because there would be times I think, how did they make that fly? Oh, there's the wire. Right. Okay, that's neat. And it didn't it didn't make it any less enjoyable to me. It almost made it more enjoyable where I could kind of figure out some stuff, like trying to figure out a magic trick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. One of the things that occurs to me, I think again about the name he gave his puppet company or that technique actually, Anna Magic. Mm-hmm. And I think when I compare a normal animated cartoon, which is flat, 
which is yeah, two-dimensional. Yeah. I think it was taking it to three dimensions. It yeah, made that's a good point. these characters so much more human-like. And of course, Winnie then added all that detail, like the eyelids and all right. of the human characteristics yeah. that he was so you know meticulous about. Yeah. That, of course, just took it to the next level. But how many times in this show have we said character development? But, but that's what it is, right? <laughs> yeah. He was yeah. making them very human, very... Um, Identifiable. Yes. To little kids who may be having issues with bullies and to go, oh, oh, okay, well, Rudolph had this problem and he found his friends and it could be good for that to know that your people are out there. You just have to find them. Mm-hmm. And it made you identify, as you're saying, you know, it made you identify with the characters so quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it took me seconds to realize how much I love Clarice. Yes. Uh, you could just feel She was the, compassionate. Yes. She didn't care if his nose was red. That's right. She liked him anyway. And she's like, any doe would be proud to be with you or something like that. Yeah. She was just sweet. You were you were very quickly aligned in, with the with the with the kind characters, with the characters that were sympathetic, the ones that you were rooting for. You were very quickly against the ones yeah. who were mistreating. You're, you're, yeah. But I wonder why they decided Santa needed to be one of those guys that was mistreating him, just to make it a complete ostracization. I'm not sure. It's almost like they wanted him to be this father figure that was just harsh and hard to get his approval so that when he did get his approval at the end, I think it meant more. I wonder if Robert had a problem with his dad. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. I don't know. But he did seem like a grumpy dad. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Well, I think we have... We've covered Rudolph. We have covered Rudolph. So who are we going to cheers to? Let's cheers to all the misfits out there. May Mm. you all find your place and may you all find your people just like Rudolph found his. Cheers. This episode of Scandal Water was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown. That's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. All music was written, composed, performed, and mixed by Josh Martin. The artwork was designed by Matt C. Adams, while our website was developed by Joshua Reith. If you like what you hear and you want to help keep the Scandal Water brewing, please go to our website, scandalwaterpodcast.com. Just click on your podcatcher of choice, then hit follow to subscribe. And while you're there, you might as well leave us a five-star rating and review. And don't forget, it's always more fun when you share your tea with others. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.